Um, so today we're going to be talking about doubt. And I, th- I think if you look at the passage, maybe initially, you're like, doubt? You know, I, I don't necessarily see doubt in, in the passage um, on the surface level. You know, it, this passage is on Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas, you know, the guy who's synonymous throughout all of history for doubt. Um, you know, pretty, pretty bad rap. Um, but I think if we really look at it, if we look closely, we can see that doubt is at the root of Peter's denial. Um, so as we dig in, we're going to be looking at three things, because that's the way we do it around here, I've learned, right, is to, to do three things. No, no rock in the boat today. Um, so we're, we're going to be looking at the root of doubt, the examination of our faith, and the hope of the gospel. So if we look at, if, if we look at the root of our doubt, so if we look at the meaning of doubt, doubt means to hesitate or to waver. It means to be uncertain. And I think this is something that we all struggle with in many parts of our lives. I think if someone hasn't struggled with doubt, they, they probably haven't really asked themselves the hard questions. They probably haven't really wrestled with the tough things in life. Tim Keller writes this. He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who go blithely through life too busy or too indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if they have failed over the years to listen patiently to their own doubts which should only be discarded after long reflection. So I think there's two ways that many of us experience doubt. Um, and I think a lot, of, a lot of these break along cultural lines, they break along generational lines, they break along societal lines. Um, and I think the first way is a lot of us are embarrassed by our doubt. Uh, we, we try to immediately suppress it. Um, we try to hide it from ourselves, we try to hide it from others. We even try to hide it from God. You know, we're, we're, we're ashamed of our doubt. We're embarrassed by our doubt. And so we just suppress our doubt. We just push it away, push it to the side. We don't think about it. We don't wrestle with it. We don't contemplate on it. And I think the second way is, is kind of on the other side. I think people, there, there's kind of a, a, an urge in our culture where, where people kind of fly the flag of doubt. Like they're, they're proud to doubt everything, Right? They just want to be a doubter. They want to doubt everything um, as if doubt in itself is a good thing. So I think if we look at both of these reactions, neither of them get to the heart of doubt. Both of them are surface level reactions and don't allow us to address our doubt. And both have the ability to lead us astray. So we can run from it, we can suppress it, right? Or we can be content to wallow in it. Um, but I think to get a deeper understanding of who God is um, and our place in here, we have got to go through the hallway of doubt. Doubt will be a part of our lives. So let's look at the story of Peter up to this point. So if you look at the story of Peter up to the point of his denial, we really don't see Peter as a coward, someone who would shy back from the question of a servant girl, Right? We don't see this in Peter. We see Peter more as a bull in a china shop kind of guy, right? He's always the guy charging in, always the guy that puts his foot in his mouth, always the guy who, who's just kind of on the front edge of everything, right? He has this boldness about him. I mean, that's kind of what we think of when we see as Peter. So almost we're caught off guard 
when we see Peter's denial. Even earlier in that evening, Jesus tells Peter that you will deny me. And Peter's response in verse 35, he says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And you even see that come out in him when an armed garrison comes to arrest Jesus. Who's there in the front? It's Peter, right? Drawing his sword and chopping a man's ear off, right? Peter, Peter is willing at that moment to die for Jesus. And so it's hard. And so we see Peter deny Jesus just hours after this, not once, not twice, but three times. And some, maybe, maybe it'll ask, you know, why? You know, why, why does Peter deny Jesus? I think we'll get a glimpse if we look back at Matthew chapter 16. I think we'll get some insight on this. So if, if you have a Bible, you can turn. Matthew 16, we'll start in verse 13. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here you see Peter kind of hitting a high note, right? He, he, he confesses, Jesus, you are the Son of God. And Jesus calls him by name, Peter, on this rock I will build my church. And yet we skip down three verses later, verse 21. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And I think this is where we can start to see the root of Peter's doubt. It stems from the fact that, that Jesus does not line up with Peter's expectations of him. Jesus tells Peter and the disciples multiple times, I will be turned over to the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and I will be killed, and I will raise on the third day. And yet Peter takes Jesus aside to rebuke him for this. Jesus does not line up with Peter's expectations of him. Peter's hope is on the kingdom of God, right? Peter's hope is on the kingdom of God, but it's not the same kingdom of God that Jesus is proclaiming. Peter's hope is on the kingdom of God here and now in his time in a physical way, which includes the kingdom of Israel being reestablished in a physical way, in a physical place in that time by overthrowing the powers that be. 
And this is such a common theme that you see from those close to Jesus. Even after Jesus dies, rises again, and is about to ascend to heaven, you see in Acts 1 that they ask him, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And I think we see that Peter has this idea that if Jesus were to die, this whole thing is off, right? This whole thing is over. And so Peter is devastated. And his own, the Messiah was coming to make things right. And for him, that meant this physical kingdom now. And he even pulled Jesus aside to make sure that Jesus knew, no, you're not gonna die, not on my watch. So when, the, so when the rug was pulled out from Peter and Jesus is arrested and sentenced to die, Peter's whole life is turned upside down in this moment. And I think doubt took over his heart and he wavers. And so Peter loses his way because Jesus did not meet his expectations. And when the thing that he was putting his ultimate hope in crumbled, doubt sets in and Peter wavers. And I don't think Peter's the only one here. I think... Um, many times that is the root of our doubt as well. You know, we have things in our life that we put our ultimate faith in, that our ultimate hope in. You know, we have these things that are our Lord, something we cling to, something that gives us ultimate hope and purpose and meaning in life. And if this thing crumbles, we crumble along with it. And, and many times these things are good things. They're good things that become ultimate things. You know, it's not a bad thing that Peter desired for the kingdom of God to come. It's just Peter's idea of the kingdom was misplaced. He did not fully understand. And a lot of, our, a lot of times, our ultimate things are also misplaced. It could be money. It could be a job. It could be your family. It could be comfort. It could be security. Um, it could be whether your political party is in power. But if these things aren't right, we fall apart and we're full of doubt. So the second point is the examination of our faith. So what do we do when, when doubt sets in? Um, so I'd, I'd like to look at this idea of faith. So what is faith and how does faith interact with our doubt? So doubt is not the opposite of faith. Right, doubt as we talked about earlier is when we hesitate, it's when we're uncertain. It's when we're wavering. But in this, it allows us a space to wrestle with the hard things. It can actually be a great catalyst in our faith. Unbelief, on the other hand, is the absence of faith. So when we have doubt, we can be working through our faith. But when we've moved to unbelief, we no longer even have a desire to believe. So going back to Peter, there's a famous story in Matthew 14, right, where Jesus is, is walking on the water through the storms and Peter is asking if he, if he can come out. And so Peter says to him in verse eight, he says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out onto the water. And Jesus tells him, he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when he got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. And so what we have here is you have the reality of the storm, 
to Peter is greater than the reality of Jesus in that moment. Jesus is, or Peter's belief that the storm would sink him is greater than the belief that Jesus would sustain him. So faith is having trust or confidence in something. It's belief. And we all have faith, right? We all have belief. Um, it's not just some abstract thing within Christianity that, that, we, that we have. You know, faith is the compass of our souls. It guides us and leads us in our daily decisions. We're making decisions daily on how we spend our money, who we're gonna marry, where we're gonna live, what job we're gonna take, based on our faith assumptions, based on the reality of what we believe. And if we have faith in God as revealed in the scriptures, we make decisions based on that faith. We allow God to inform our decisions on how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we use our bodies, how we relate to power. And we believe with faith that all things then will work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Not good in the American dream type of way where everything is, is, is fine, right? Um, but good in our souls, you know, and good for the kingdom of God. And if we live under the assumption that there is no God, or if there is a God, he could care less about me. You know, he's maybe sitting up in a lawn chair in, in, in heaven, just kind of kick back, uh, you know, drinking a lemonade. You know, we, we live and make decisions based on that assumption as well. And it's not that we live in a world that's void of faith. It's that many people's faith is in lesser things. So if all of your, all of your decisions in life revolve around money, you know, what job you take, how you spend it, what type of house you have, what type of car you have, how much you give, if all of your decisions in life, how many kids you have, whatever it is, just revolve around money, you probably won't admit it but you're probably putting your faith in money. That it will bring you happiness and joy and completeness. Even though we know in the history of all mankind that has never worked, right? That's never satisfied. But we're, all the, we're always the one, right? Well, it didn't work for them, but I'm not them, right? I can, I can do it. Like we all have this, this idea that we can conquer something that no one else has ever, Right? Um, and, and we put our faith in other things, in alternate things, and make them the main thing. So fill in the blank. It could be money, it could be control, comfort, security. Ask yourself, what alternative faith are you believing in to fulfill your life? Uh, Matt Chandler, a, a pastor in Dallas, says this. He says, no change in job, no increased income, no new home, no new electronic device and no new spouse is going to make things better inside of you. Everybody knows that something is broken in the world, but illogically, foolishly, we're looking for fixes from broken people with broken ideas in broken places. How fast are we to believe that so many other things will fill us? How fast are we to put our faith and things that falter. And when we do, we're left broken. And there's a desire and a need for the next thing, and the next fix, and the next thing that will, that will fix us. So some of you guys are saying, you know, maybe be sitting here saying, you know, I, I, I struggle with my faith. 
you know, I struggle with my faith and I have doubts. Um, I ran into this great quote by, by David Bisgrove. He's a pastor at Redeemer Fellowship in New York. Um, it's gonna come up on the screen. It says, the point is not necessarily how strong or weak your faith is, but who and what you put your faith in. So let me illustrate this with a story. Uh, so imagine you're Indiana Jones, right? That's, that's at least who I imagine I am. You, get, you guys can pick someone else if you want. Um, but imagine you're Indiana Jones, and, the, and you have to get from point A to B, right? And there's a giant chasm between you. And behind you, there's a, a, a group of individuals who would like nothing more than to see you dead, right? And so, so Indiana Jones has to get from point A to B. And luckily, there, there are a bunch of vines hanging from the ceiling here. Um, you know, he, he has his pick. Um, so in that moment, it's not necessarily important how much faith you have in the vine, right? Even the smallest amount of faith will allow you to jump to the vine. So it doesn't matter if you have great faith to jump to that vine or a small amount of faith to jump to that vine. What matters is the vine that you choose. You can have great faith, but if you put that faith in the wrong vine, you're going down, right? You're going down. So it's not necessarily how strong or weak the faith is, but who and what we put our faith in. You can be full to the brim with faith, but if you choose the wrong vine, your faith was misplaced, and down you go. But if you choose the right vine, even the smallest amount of faith will get you to the other side. And it's just, it reminds me of the words of, of Jesus in John 15, where he says, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. Right? Abide in me. What's important is that we are choosing the right vine. I think we deceive ourselves if we think our faith has to be perfect. It never will be. It never will be. I mean, the Bible is full of imperfect people with imperfect faith. But as we look at Peter and we, as we look at others, the thing that sets them apart is that their faith is in a perfect Savior. And this brings us to our third point, the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel. So let's go back to the story of Peter. <clears throat> so the last we saw Peter was him going out, weeping bitterly after his denial of Jesus. Um, but lucky for us, we know that's not where the story ends. We see a beautiful picture in, in John chapter 21. So Peter apparently has been cooped up behind closed doors for, for long enough. So he decides to go fishing. You know, and six other disciples go fishing with him and they fish all night and they catch nothing until a stranger from the, from the shore calls out, you know, cast your nets to the other side. So they're like, all right. So they cast them to the other side and they, and they have a net load of fish. Right, and, and Peter realizes in that moment that it's Jesus on the shore, right? So he just jumps out of the boat, you know, and swims to Jesus. And we'll pick it up in, in, in verse 15 of John 21, where it says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. 
He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this saying, he said to him, follow me. And you know what Peter does? He follows. And, and it's not a perfect following. If you, I mean, if you read the rest of the story, Peter stumbles and Peter falls and Peter makes bad decisions. But he's following. He's following. And I think what's amazing to this, about this story, is that Jesus comes to Peter where he is. And Jesus comes to us where we are. He doesn't expect you. He's, he's not waiting for a perfect faith. He's not waiting for you to get rid of all of your doubts. Jesus wants to come to you in your doubts. He wants to come to you and meet you in that place. So what about us? How do we cultivate faith when we're doubting? Here's some, some practical things I think we can do. One is to pray. And I know that seems cliche, but prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful. When we direct our doubts toward God in prayer, it is not only biblical, but it is powerful. God hears us. And he desires to, you to bring your hurts and your frustrations and your doubts to him. The Bible tells us to cast our cares on him because he cares for you and he knows you. The second is read your Bible. Once more, very cliche. Um, but if, if we believe that faith is the compass for our lives and we're making decisions based on that faith, then our faith is strengthened when we remind ourselves of the hope that we have in the gospel. And that hope is found in the word of God. There are so many competing stories out there to tell you who you are, what you should be, what you should do. There's a song by the Robbie Say Band, it's called Merciful King. It says, our creator, our redeemer, our maker, and merciful king. This idea that our creator is our redeemer. He knows us. He knows us, and he has formed our story. And if you want to know where you fit in that, you find it in the Bible. You find that you are, you are loved deeper than you could ever know, that you are more flawed than you could ever know, and yet you are still loved. You're still loved. And the third is being in community. I think this is so vital, a part of growing our faith and walking through doubt, is being in a community of people who love you, who will pray for you, who will encourage you because there will be a time when you need it. 
It doesn't matter how strong you are. It doesn't matter how independent you are. It doesn't matter um, if you don't think that you need that. You will need that in your life. And if you look at the story of Peter, you see him, the next time you see Peter is when Mary comes back and tells the disciples the tomb is empty, right? And Peter and John like run to the tomb, right? So Peter was there among them. I would imagine that Peter felt more shame than probably any of us have ever felt from his denial of Jesus just mere days later. And when we feel shame, our first instinct is to hide. It's our first instinct is to move away from people, right? But what we need to be is in a community of people who love us and who can walk through that with us. And Peter is there in that community. And we need to be in that community as well. And I think if these practices are strong, when the storms of life hit you and doubts surround you, it will not sink you. Will doubts come? And will storms come? Well, of course they are. They will come. They are inevitable. I'm not saying there won't be doubts, but I'm saying that when there's communion with God through prayer, through reading the word, and having other believers around you to surround you and encourage you and love on you, this will help you navigate through doubt. So Hebrew tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And what is our hope? Our hope is in Jesus. So what a better way to see this hope than a a tangible way of communion. So communion is a time where we gather together as a church to remember, to remember what Christ has done on our behalf, to remember that Jesus' body was broken, that his blood was shed for the remission of our sins. So let's take some time as we prepare our hearts for communion to remember, to pray, to mourn over our sin, to seek forgiveness, and to rejoice that through Christ's sacrifice, we are forgiven.